Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on Skype, June 13th, 2020. Model Rail Radio is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. We have on the one and only Lawrence Egering, Uncle Larry, as you've been known to some. What has been going on in the past few weeks with you in the hobby? I've um, been all over the place with it, and mm. quite honestly, um, I've been refining a grade crossing that um, uh, a dear friend of mine up in Seattle, Jeff Bunza, Dr. Mm. Jeff, uh, created, and I've kind of made it my own, but I found some new sensors for Arduino that finally take some of the variables out of it that are kind of hidden away to those of us that program. And I'll be um, doing a video on them this coming week um, and putting it out on, on Facebook and YouTube. Um, Interesting. Additionally, I've done some remotoring work. I've done some decal creations. Ooh. I've got a new, another new Alps printer in. And uh, I've reorganized the shop. So it's been kind of busy. Very good. Very good. Well, I have two topics that I wanted to float this evening. I realized as I logged into Facebook that this was 24 years. 24 years ago, I was in Malaysia and I launched a project which at the time was called the Nirvana Project. It's also been known as Noble Ape. It's now known as the APSDK. And I have been working on that project continuously for the past 24 years. Now, what has this got to do with model railroading? Well, it is, in a simulation sense, basically just like a model railroad, except it's simulating a bunch of other things, and there's no moving trains. But the idea that people have layouts, and in some cases modules, and in some cases a number of things in the hobby that they've been working on for more than 20 years. How long have you been working on your home layout? It's odd that you should mention that. Because this is the 24th year. Interesting. <laughs> so we, we have similar experiences in some regard <laughs> with this thing. Can you talk a little bit about the, I guess, the intimacy that one has when one works on something for 24 years? Yeah, it's, um, it is. It becomes a part of you. For instance, I was uh, underneath the layout looking for a box the other day. And I looked at how I did some wiring, which was perfectly fine there's nothing wrong with it mm. but by today's standards people would <laughs> roll their eyes you know and uh for instance what it was is i had a a big piece of number 12 wire okay and i couldn't find terminal strips at that time so i i tacked these in with staples and then i soldered all of the feeders to them and then the main bus wire to that you know to create a sort of a terminal block without screws now, today, people would freak out. They'd say, oh, my God, terminal blocks are everywhere. 24 years ago, they were god-awful expensive if you could find them. Mm. So guys typically ran a bus around and then would strip out sections and just solder their feeders to them. Certainly. Well, today, they're doing that with suitcase connectors. And some guys are still doing it that way. But most people, you know, you just throw a terminal strip on it. And, you know, they come with shorting plugs so you can create, you know, a left and a right terminal strip and just connect the wires to it. So that's the, the, when you look up and you realize I laid on my back 24 years ago <laughs> and stripped all of those wires and twisted them around that thing and, and then took the time to get the soldering gun, which I haven't used in five years out to solder those wires on. And, I mean, 
the uh, the other thing is when I made the move to DCC because that was it was a DC layout. Back that was then. my next question. <laughs> yeah. I made the move to DCC, and you know, and you know me, Tom. I jumped in with Certainly. both feet and my hair on fire. When was that specifically? How many years ago? I I'm gonna have to say it was in 2002, maybe okay. 2003. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I was fortunate in that I got to do some math in my head. Yeah, I think it was 2003. I was fortunate that the local club had already made the dive Mm. and no one knew anything about it except me and the guy who owned the hobby shop. Interesting. The only reason I knew is because I sat down with books and read and did, you know, and and the big book of DCC was a big part of my library back then because, uh, and now you know, it's all out there on the web. Certainly. You know, that's that's the other thing. Think about it. In 1996, Tom, 24 years ago, the <laughs> World Wide Web was a brand new thing. It was. You know? <laughs> it certainly facilitated my, my early machinations with my project. So this is fascinating. The nature of the layout as a something of history, but also, as you say, something that change is necessarily a part of. I mean, whether it be changes in scenery techniques, whether it be, as you noted, changes in wiring, whether it be control changes. In terms of the layout itself, have you done extensions over the time, or was it always the size that it is now? It is larger now than it was then, by about two and a half feet in width and about a foot in length. Um, It pretty much consumed, it's in a garage, so it consumed the majority of the footprint I could give it at the time. But um, because I also have, that's where my shop is, is right next to the layout. So I tried to save a little space. And what it ended up being is I just realized operationally I needed the extra run and the extra yard to make it do what I wanted to do. So I uh, I sacrificed that little bit of space, added probably... Oh, out of all that, I bet I've added a hundred feet of track. Hmm. So it's a lot more layout operationally than it was then, but physically in size, not so much. Interesting. And where did you add the track specifically? Was it sidings? Was it more yards? I, where did you put it specifically? Uh, both. Um, okay. On on the let's call it the wall side of the layout which is the outside wall of the garage, I added a, um, a single track going into a dual track. Um, that's about, I think it's nine inches wide, okay? And that comes down and around the end, that foot I was talking about at the end. And then when you get past that end and around the corner, you come up into the yard I added, which is almost mm-hmm. two and a half feet. So um, I have space for... I think we measured it at 35 total cars in that little yard by my bench. Mm, but interesting. It's, you know, as things go and, and you realize why it'd be handy if I did this, for instance, I was, the first thing I did servos with was a team digital product, which I still actually have on my leg, still working after all this time. Gosh. Um, I, I was looking at a, I talked to Bill and he had a new product coming out and he asked me to beta test it. And I did. I did all the tests he wanted, some extras that I wanted. And I realized, wow, this would be great to make an automatic switch. 
between a live track and a program track right here behind the bench. Hmm. So I can literally pick the locomotive up, turn it around, set it on the track, program it, throw throw a DCC switch. It becomes a live track, and I can run the locomotive out onto the layout all in one fell swoop. And that's with one simple product. Now, today, with an Arduino, I could do that 20 times over, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But 10 years ago, it was a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of guys do that with with just the double pull, double throw switch. But the interesting problem is the old decoders had this habit where the locomotive would wander as it was reading a CV uh, yes. because they used the motor reply as an, an acknowledgement. Well, you don't want to cross from the program track to the main line ever. You don't want those two to mix because bad things can happen to everything. Mm-hmm. So. This product actually has two little servos that push pins up. Mm. So when it becomes a program track, there are pins that are about a half inch from the end of the program section that make sure the locomotive cannot get out on the mainline track. And additionally, it has a blinking red LED to tell you it's in program mode. Gosh. So, you know, and 10 years ago, that was an incredible thing, you know, just to sit down and and make it work, and it didn't take a long time, but, you know, you had to be a bit creative with it. Certainly. And you so strike me as someone who's relatively happy with their layout, right? You seem relatively contented with the view that you're adding Arduinos and various other functionality. Would would that characterize you correctly? Yes. Um, uh, a mutual friend, Lionel, asked me one time, he said, well, if you could tear this layout out, would you? Mm. And I said, yes. I said, because it's not me. I... The layout was, um, that's, that alone is a long story. Um, <laughs> it was a gift from a, from a, uh, benefactor here in town who we were removing it from his house. Interesting. And, um, it was a nice, his was designed to be a two level. Interesting. Mine is a single level, so sort of. And, uh, so I had to adapt it to fit my space as well because he had a 72 inch helix outside of his layout room. So I did not have that the capability to do that. So um, so Lionel asked me, would you take it out if, if you could? And I said, yes, maybe. But I have so I've created so much with the design I have that it's still partially mine. You know what I mean? The, the whole Schnossage Brothers spill. Without question. Uh, Bubba's bottled water, the swamp, and I could go down the list, you know. Those things are all spurious thoughts from some crazy people, you know. <laughs> it's interesting, so, the notion of the acquired layout, because I think that's certainly a familiar theme and certainly a number of the layouts that I've visited. I mean, one of my favorites in Australia, Ros Flint's layout, is four acquired layouts of actually, <laughs> I think two of them are Australian, one of them is American, one of them is Japanese. <laughs> but uh, putting those together, and in, in particular how the U.S. part of the lat has pretty well colonized, it's basically Colorado or Arizona all the way around, and then it becomes Australia, and Japan is kind of the peninsula. But th- that whole thing, the notion of layouts that have been other people's that then people make their own, I think is really fascinating in the hobby, and I don't know, I mean... I kind of know the history of the Australian layout and a bit of the history of the Japanese layout, but I get the sense that they're probably the people that made them are long since departed. I mean, the Australian layout's from the mid seventies. So I think it's an interesting way of kind of culturally and historically maintaining the hobby. And obviously the scenery and stuff has been updated, 
over time, but it is really fascinating. I didn't realize that your layout had actually come from someone else. Yeah, and the, the the backstory behind it is the man who was getting this lay it was a custom built layout. I mean, the the base lumber is there isn't a piece of pine in there. It's all hardwood. Wow. They all girder everything. Gosh. All the risers, they're all hardwood. Gosh. So you know, the, it, he spent some money on it, but he himself was a certified hero. He was the number three in command of the Chosin Few in Korea. Gosh. And. You know what? We sat down and talked and talked with him, and he had called me. He had donated a bunch of things to our club, mm-hmm. and one of the last things he did is he said, "I just need somebody to help me haul this thing out to the road so the trash people can take it take it away." Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and I called my wife and I said, "Well, you may be mad, but there's going to be some things in the garage." Because <laughs> my original intent was. I didn't know if I was going to put it back together, or but it was loaded with Shinohara turnouts oh, that yeah. were immaculately laid and Shinohara flex track. Yes. So I knew, and none of it was ballasted or anything, so Gosh. it would come off nice and easy, Gosh. you know. So I thought, if nothing else, I could repurpose all the track and all that. And little when I got the thing home, and I carried it in one load on a Chevy Astro van, wow, a conversion van at that. Gosh. Uh, it, and it's just when when I think about, you know, I, I brought it home, was going to put it in the garage and start stripping it. And my wife saw the track plan, the uh, the original drawings of the mm. track plan. She said, well, that'll fit in here. Why don't you just put it up? We don't put the car in the garage anyway. Yeah. So uh, and uh, little did I know, I mean, in two weeks, I was actually able to run a, a train back and forth. Wonderful. And we did that for about six months before I was able to get a loop working. And I had five people tell me there's no way you'll ever make a loop work on this. And I still did it. Yeah. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way, right? I mean, well, yeah, sometimes you run into physics, you know. But, uh, <laughs> physics. Uh. <laughs> but I mean, at one point I had a 19 inch radius. That was mm-hmm. the tightest radius I had. And uh, now. Uh, it's the the tightest is twenty two and a half, and uh, and most of it is twenty four. Yes. So it's just you know I think about the nights I was out there until three o'clock in the morning with you know FM radio playing sixties rock and roll <laughs> on, and neighbors <laughs> laughing because I could hear them outside laughing. You know. Yes. Larry's working on trains again. You know. <laughs> yes. Well, that's an amazing memory, Larry. Thank you very much for sharing it because yeah, I think. Those kind of memories, and I do keep, I literally, today was on eBay. I periodically look at eBay associated with pre-loved layouts because I've seen some amazing ones. And if I pulled the trigger on some early ones, there was a NASA one that came up that was just absolutely beautiful and there have been various desert ones that are all within 100 miles of me. Again, mm-hmm. it's um, spousal permission more than anything that uh, tends to block these purchases. But having seen, I mean, Ross's layout, when I first saw it, I first saw it probably about... Uh, maybe 10 years ago now, didn't look like it was ever going to coherently run. And Roz, I mean, really the past eight years of the past 10 years has been her and obviously Jim Gifford and their whole crew working on it, working on it, working on it, working on it. And to go back and see it, I saw it uh, maybe a couple of years ago and to see it and to see the Rockies and to see everything coherently, because when I first saw it, the, U.S. part of it was really not there. I mean, it wasn't there functionally. It was more kind of storage stuff. She had a lot of old brass on it. 
But mm-hmm. to go back and see that scenic and actually functioning and a turntable and, you know, steam locomotives actually rolling on that area. But also, to be fair, the Japanese part of Laos, which is the peninsula, was also storage. <laughs> it was not coherently, <laughs> like, you could, you could look at and see, ah, oh, there's track and buildings and stuff. It was just, like, boxes and locomotives and a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, to see what eight years can do to a layout, it, even when, as you say, the physics, because when I first saw it, the physics were completely wrong. There were literally, you know, six inches difference in various track points. There was no way it was going to come together without, as you say, quite a bit of work. But the thing that I love, and you note about it with the Shinohara stuff, that people have a reverence, and the Australian part of Roslau was beautiful hand-like track. The grass hand-like track was wonderful to look at, and clearly a a lot of love from the, you know, the original person in the 70s, and it was very just like a quintessential Australian tree scene with eucalypts and other stuff. Um, And that was the main you, you, (laughs) it's literally in a bunker. So you come down a set of metal, they're not even stairs, it's like a metal ladder or welded metal (laughs) ladder down into this (laughs) bunker. And on the far end is where the Australian part of the layout is, and then the US part of the layout kind of curves around the bunker part and then you have a peninsula but yeah i remember just initially with some reverence looking at the australian and of course the smell alone of the timbers and these kind of things was was really nice um initially uh, but yeah i love the idea of the reverence of people and dave vaughan in uh, washington dc i'm not sure have you ever been to dave vaughan's layout it's a low scale layout with I- john armstrong stuff and he's got maybe three or four different layout owners Stuff historically in this, again, it's very much like a bunker, kind of old scale bunker. Have you been to Dave Vaughan's layout? I have not. Right. I have not. I, it's certainly one of the layouts I think is well worth seeing. I was really privileged. Tony Costa and I were on the layout at the same time. Dave Vaughan stopped talking to Tony Costa and gave primarily my wife, but also me kind of tagging along a tour of the layout, which was just an amazing experience as well. Um, but yeah, I really like the idea of people picking up other layouts or pieces of other layouts. And obviously, I, I think John Armstrong's son was pretty central in making sure that John Armstrong's layout was passed on to a variety of different people. And I really like that idea in the hobby that, you know, these things are, you know, can be passed on. We had a conversation last recording with Clark Kooning associated with, you know, writing things down and making sure that things are in order. So, you know, in the horrible eventuality that we're no longer here, these things are passed on, sold, propagated, whatever direction it goes. But yeah, it was a kind of seeding this conversation in some regard. The secondary topic that I wanted to raise before we get to Mike Slater, my wife is uh, an avid quilter. Is your wife a quilter? Do I remember that correctly, Larry? Uh, she's a seamstress. Seamstress. She sews, yes. Okay. My wife has just come off. It started at nine today. It's at about 3.30 it finished. So a pretty good day's worth of a... I think there were 80 participants. It was a quilting thing, Zoom call, basically, hosted by a company, but basically everyone could, you know, work on their own thing. And it was just the amount of, I mean, I was working in another room. I was actually editing a model rail radio for a good portion of it. But just the amount of sheer joy that came out in the air, the women just getting excited and talking and people discussing family histories and all this kind of stuff. It was just amazing event and i know speaking of lionel strang he has a, a zoom call which is done periodically but looking at the photos and things it seems very serious and people seem to, i mean as serious as a lionel strang event could possibly be but the 
amount of sheer joy that was just coming out of this room. I'm actually recording in my wife's quilting room currently really captivated me. And I look at the NMRA events. I'm actually going to be doing one in a couple of weeks time. Um, midday, uh, I'm going to be talking about podcasting. And I'm wondering if I can create or recreate some of this joy in discussing the hobby with a kind of community involvement through this thing. Maybe just breaking the NMRAX paradigm associated with how this thing is supposed to be done. In terms of the things that you've seen so far, have you seen any of these large participation things? Do you get a sense that the the joy of the hobby has been conveyed? Now, I, I'm not sure if you saw the Twin Cities stuff. I thought the Twin Cities stuff was pretty good. I but did. It, it was still very much, you know, layout to a... And although the chat was quite fun through that, the thing that really captivated me through my wife's event or the wife the event she attended was just how the general community joy was like a central part of the whole thing. Have you observed anything like this in the hobby recently? Not recently. We used to have these after show chats. I don't know if you remember those probably what, seven, eight years ago or more. And those were fun because it was um not structured. Certainly. You know. Lord only knew, you know, the rule was no one recorded it. <laughs> oh, I recorded Well, it's interesting, actually, because there were a series of those where I was presented the recording after the fact. Like, I was told, in particular, <clears throat> a certain gentleman who we've already mentioned a couple of times, yeah, I would pass these recordings, and, like, you have to arbitrate this dispute now. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Uh, believe me. So, and the interesting thing through that was... Um, I mean, yeah, it, I, 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 yeah, anyway, continue, recently, sorry. Recently, I will say, what, <laughs> okay, so I, I was honored to, um, and I don't know if it'll ever make publication, but I was honored to co-host a podcast last night. Wonderful. With, with a friend in the hobby who I hadn't talked to in probably five years cool. or more. And if I said his name, you'd know him. Okay. Uh, but we, about halfway through the podcast, we lost all control. Uh. <laughs> Is it an existing <laughs> podcast or will it be a new podcast? Yes. Yeah, no, and you would know the podcast. Of course. I, I, well, it, it was Tim. Yes. Tim Harris. Yes. Okay. Uh, if it if it doesn't make publication, I I don't care. Well, no, you I know? think we should insist it makes publication now. I think you've done well, that, it, Larry. Let's probably I'll know Tim, but, you know, <laughs> but it was, we were on two hours yes. for a one-hour show, you know? Yes. <laughs> because it was like, um, so that was part of it. Um, Jeremy Dumbler hosts a, um, an impromptu WebEx call mm -hmm. with the same type of thing every other Friday. And that's always very light, you know? So, yeah. And, um, uh, I think, I think the nature of trying to do things in the electronic medium, such as a Zoom call or mm -hmm. a Skype call, or anything with a structured event kind of dictates the flow. Mm. Sometimes when it's just a couple of guys getting together and talking about something stupid you did in the hobby, which you'll never hear on a published podcast, mm. you know, <laughs> it, it, you'll start laughing and then, well, you think that's something. Look what I did. You know? Yes. You know, and those are the things that when you can't get together because of a, a coronavirus or whatever mm. you know or just distance mm. it's wonderful to to have built those relationships you know um 
the talking about Michael will be coming up. Mike and I haven't seen each other in five years, but I bet we've talked 300 times in five years. Oh, yeah. You know, and not just on here. You yeah, know what certainly. I mean? Well, Bruce and, Kelly, I always remember Bruce Kelly at Portland. Bruce yeah. Kelly grabbed me at Portland and we sat together and talked for probably three and a half hours. Yeah. Very little of it was about model railroading. And a lot of it was about things where he'd listened to another one of my podcasts um, that was out at the time. And he'd kind of collected together a list of topics that he was like, I have to talk to Tom about these things. Right. And it was actually really interesting because on a number of occasions, one of us was supposed to go and do something or we were supposed to meet someone or I seem to recall it wasn't my wife necessarily. I think there were other people at the event. And they'd kind of bump into us and say, okay, we'll come back and meet you at this time. And we kind of lost track of time on a number of those conversations. But it made me realize, I mean, Bruce Kelly for Show 100, I think I, I can't recall which came first, whether Portland came first or Show 100 came first. I think Show 100 might have I think you're first. correct there, yeah. And then, so Bruce Kelly had already met me in Show 100. He'd already been in my house, actually, as did 70-plus other model um, <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so so we already knew each other, but it was the opportunity, I think, just to have some focused time, which I, on Show 100, clearly we didn't have. I mean, it was interesting, actually. Uh, Jim Lincoln stayed an extra day in order to have some kind of friendly conversational time, and I, my wife was literally, you know, dead to the world. We had to go to the hospital, I think, the day following or something. And I was pretty well exhausted, and Jim realised that we were just completely shot. It was interesting sitting down with Bruce Kelly and just realizing, and look, there are so many people, I mean, Malcolm Johnson, most recently, I spent basically the better part of a day in Sacramento with Malcolm Johnson. And I just, it was just such a wonderful experience. And we did talk about the hobby a little bit, but most of it, as you say, was just socializing and catching up. And I mean, Malcolm has done a substantial move, right? He's wasn't Berkeley. He's now in Sacramento. He's downsized. He's, you know, so we had a lot to talk about and just a lot of social things to catch up on as well. Jim Gifford is another good example of this. Every time I see Jim Gifford, every time we're, you know, nearby, the professor is another example. Uh, mm -hmm. I spent, uh, you know, three hours with him. Literally, we only had five hours in Sydney. <laughs> I said to my wife, do you mind if we go up to Bondi, which is the area the professor lives in Sydney? And she said, okay, we'll go up and see Bondi. And I said, do you mind if uh, the professor comes on? <laughs> and yeah, so that worked out. My wife and the professor get on. In fact, I went to get drinks before. And when I came back, my wife and the professor were in some conversation. The professor arrived and just, you know, started a conversation with my wife. So, yeah, I think the, the people in this hobby, in particular, also the format of podcasts in general, kind of lend themselves to these kind of friendships and conversations. The thing that interested me about the event, and I'm going to quiz my wife about it more because I really think there's potential for, as you say, the format of these, I mean, I've tried to keep Model Rail Radio as open-ended as possible, but you're right, we do talk business, we do talk people's layouts and, you know, structures and ideas and the hobby and all this kind of stuff. But, yeah, the outbreaks of joy that I saw, in particular the fact that people, there were points where people broke away and were just showing thing, interesting artifacts in their house, right, <laughs> Which, yeah. truth be told, through we've been on lockdown since the start of May. Very occasionally with the work-related calls, I'll just be on a call with someone and, you know, they'll show me something in their house or I'll... My wife's got a 18-foot-long long-arm machine downstairs, which is quite an object. I mean, it's, a, it's an 18-foot-long sewing machine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, occasionally I'll, you know, 
show that to people on calls when I'm on calls. And so that, that the work aspect of this thing with video calls, we have done breakouts occasionally to, to you know break the monotony. But I've not seen anything seriously done within the hobby to do that. And the thing that interested me with what my wife was doing today was just how you could feel the catharsis. You could feel that people and people were talking about things that they would have done if they weren't on lockdown. And that was some of the conversations that I overheard while I was editing um, the show that I just put up. I just thought these are really interesting and important conversations. I'm really just getting emotions out, basically, that I think are really very healthy. And although some of the conversations that we've had through these various recordings, particularly the COVID recordings, have been in that light, it just it struck me as just a different way to do this thing. So an idea anyway to put out. I think I think we do that. Mm. Um, you know, every podcast I've been on kind of before you start, you always have a here's where we think we're going, mm. you know. Um, do I do that? I don't think I do that. No, you don't. Uh, you don't. <laughs> You're probably one of the few. <laughs> but and then and then there's always room for, you know, maneuvering as mm. you need to. You know, I always thought it would be hilarious to do a podcast of two guys talking. Mm. You know, all right. What's on your mind? Mm. <laughs> well, I did that. I mean, that was the that was the podcast donate that um, Bruce Kelly listened to. I did that for about seven years with a linguist down in L.A. Oh, okay. I was up here. We never I, met. I, I never listened to that. Honestly, mm. it was. And it was a very busy time for me back yeah, then. Yeah, certainly. I, I think it's, I mean, a lot of it, some of it's a bit dated, but most of it actually, I've historically, I mean, we haven't done it since 2016. So it, it, you know, that in of itself dates some of it. And the election basically was the end of that recording. When I started doing it, Heron was in his late 60s. And when we finished, he was in his early 70s. And he's a very particular kind of person. So... It's a very different kind of recording, but I've always enjoyed, and I've done, historically, I've done two people talking podcasts quite a bit, but yeah, for the longer format, it, I think it actually works, and Stone Ape at its peak, we were having about 40,000 listeners, I mean, it was a serious wow. podcast for some period of time, and it did get a certain amount of publicity, and it was, I mean, there were various, I had long-term friends that had interactions with Heron that caused various fallings out and things like that. I mean, it was, he is a very unique person without question. But yeah, I think that format actually works quite well. And it's something that I've done. I mean, I did, um, a fellow who appeared in a model rail radio in 2010 called Brandon DiCamello. I did a podcast with him for nine months in a similar format, except it was very, it started very avant-garde, um, in its format and became considerably more practical. So I have done those kind of podcasts historically. And I think they tend to interest, I mean, the form of podcasting started with those kind of podcasts, sometimes couples talking, but oftentimes yep. people that just kind of know each other casually, and then they kind of, and which was really what Stonet was. In fact, I didn't even know Heron. He called into one of my podcasts one time, and we just decided we'd continue talking. So, yeah, interesting format, though. Well, I, I like tonight's show. Just to be honest, um, you, no, I mean, I had no clue this was coming, and here we are almost 35 minutes later. Yes. <laughs> and, but, but it's creative. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's another aspect. Um, well, I mean, I say this when I speak publicly at, you know, events about podcasting, but this really, I was in my podcasting room today just looking around. I've tidied up my sister's arriving. We needed a, the bedroom ready. 
But this is really an homage to both my grandfathers in some regard. This podcast, the format of it, I mean, a lot of it is to do with listening to a lot of radio as a boy. But Mm -hmm. the format is really both my grandfathers. One grandfather was in the Desert Rats in the Second World War. He came from North Africa through Italy, you know. Another hero. All that kind of stuff. Another hero. Uh, without question. And really yeah. a fascinating. There was a burnt-out panzer um, early on in North Africa. He took a camera out of the panzer and took photographs as he went up through Egypt, you know, the Sphinx, all this other kind of stuff, through Italy. And these photographs look like an amazing road trip. There are a few, small, like there are a couple of rifles in some of the photos, and you see Spitfires in one of the photos, but you're talking about 200-plus photos which are mainly of people, places, roads, children playing, lots of children playing, like human elements of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And that was basically my grandfather. And no one looked at this well after he passed away, 15, 20 years afterwards. My uncle said, oh, I've got this old box of photos. And I said, well, send them to me and I'll scan them up. So I actually ordered them and scanned them up. And, you know, that's that's my father's father. My mother's father was a family physician um, for many years. And I used to spend a lot of time with him, my summers and what have you. And I, my, my maternal grandparents, both sets of grandparents really fascinated me. But my maternal grandparents had just, were very kind of set in their ways. They had a formality to them. But they led just wonderful lives, basically, and were very friendly and very open. And I think Model Rail Radio represents, oh, my father's father was a barber. His, his brother, who is still alive, is also a barber, even into his 90s now. And the conversational nature of cutting hair is really central to basically the way my grandfather operated and his brother still operates to this day. So I think Model Royal Radio is a kind of hybridization of these two elements, basically. Um, but yeah, I certainly, as I was in my podcasting room, now it's clean and, you know, you can see books on the wall and artifacts. <laughs> I was thinking, ah, you know, I, it's always important to actually remind people that this is what Model in contrast to, I mean, there are so many podcasts now, as you say, you've got Tim Harrison's offering, which obviously comes from the late Ryan Anderson. You've got, obviously, Lionel's offering. There have been various people that have recorded podcasts at various times. But when I think about Model Rail Radio, and particularly the amount of time that I put into editing, um, it really is about these, these you know, two grandfathers, so to speak, that kind of, you know, have framed a lot of this work. Yeah. Yeah, and, and having listened to all of them, you know, it's it's nice to have the I used to listen to this radio show called The Open Forum and it was God bless this guy he would take any question anybody threw at him and, and but he was also very brutally honest if he didn't know the answer he would say well I do not know the answer to that I will get back to you next week and he would take their number and call them back wow and uh, get them back on when Gosh. he answered it. and uh and I listened to that, and I thought, boy, that's one brave guy. And oh, but Tom, you opinion that you pity that because <laughs> you just you tolerate all of us, you know. <laughs> well, it's interesting actually because I think certainly I reflect there are two or three people, one of whom used to be a close friend of yours and he's now deceased, who have actually been banned from this particular recording, usually because of really either hostilities they've had with me or hostilities they've had with other people in the recording. But it is an interesting format that it works even through the chaos. I mean, I think actually one of the things I love about Model Rail Radio is I don't know when I start the show who's going to be calling and what we're going to be discussing. It, it kind of is like a, you know, 
an open door kind of conversation, which I find really fascinating as a format. And and you know the great part about this show is we've been on almost fifty minutes and haven't heard a word out of Clark Cooning. Yeah, it's going to happen eventually, but we've got to talk to Mike Slater as well. Let's talk to Mike first, and then let's bring up Clark Cooning. Larry, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you very much for calling in. If you want to see some of my grandfather's photos, I'll uh, share the resource with you because it's just an amazing would, set of photos. I would love that. Yeah, I would love that. I, uh, I did a a um, a writing for college on uh, Barry, Italy, and, mm. a, and a mustard gas attack there, mm. and that kind of spearheaded my love for the research of World War II and the human element of it. So, you know? so I would love that. I'll pass yes. it on, most definitely. Pleasure chatting as always. You know how we do things. When Clark Cooney comes in, he may need restraint, verbal restraint. So stay around for that. Pleasure chatting just, as always. I have, I have a, a dirty cloth here I'll stuff in my mouth to ensure that I don't say Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you. I'd like to welcome on the one and only Mike Slater. Mike, my understanding is it's been a particularly hard week for you, so I don't want to dwell too much aside from allowing you to make an announcement, which is already pretty well public. So the floor is yours. Yep. As uh, as the time of this recording, Annette, uh, the board of directors for the WISE division of the NMRA uh, got together and uh, we decided to officially cancel train fest this year for 2020 as a in-person event uh a lot of the reasoning just to get it cleared off the table uh the main decision for not having train fest wasn't because of the the covid19 issue uh the main issue was not knowing if we would have the hall that we have we hold train fest in uh at the time in november because currently the event center is set up as a covid19 hospital gosh so they are kind of causally connected reasons, but not explicitly so, I guess. Gosh. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. And, and when people start realizing some of the checks that we write, uh, we were about to write a check for a probably the cost of a uh, mid-priced or uh, somewhat expensively uh, priced, maybe a low-option uh, type vehicle. Mm. Uh, to the expo center for the first part installment of the hall rental. And, uh, the advertising was going to start to kick in. And by the all, all said and done, by the time you hold an event like Train Fest, it's, you're looking around a quarter of a million dollars to put Certainly. on a show. Like that. Certainly. So, yeah. Uh, for, for us to be able to hold Train Fest in 2021, uh, we don't have deep enough pockets to, financially lose money on 2020 not knowing so the safest thing to continue train fest was to uh postpone it to 2021 but uh we are looking at doing a virtual event i've already had, i've already had numerous manufacturers reach out to me cool when when we put out in the announcement to all our manufacturers and vendors um uh one of the first ones was uh soundtracks uh was the first uh manufacturer to reach out to us and we have a lot of our different uh, hobby shops and uh, vendors are also interested in in what the virtual hobby uh, or virtual train fest is going to be uh star hobbies was one of them yankee dabbler was another one of them which are our vendors uh even train world out of new york uh which has never um had a booth at at our show 
is also interested in helping us out with the virtual uh, train so, stuff. So I, this is really good news, Mike. I mean, you've turned something around here. I mean, I, I know that a lot of the stuff is speculative currently, but you have the ability to basically ride on the shoulders of giants associated with, you know, the stuff the NMRA is doing. Obviously, you've got the Twin Cities folk that are relatively close by. You could make a really interesting and probably even better... I mean, the fact that the guys in New York are are reaching out to you seems to indicate that they see you as being the premier event, right? You 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 have an opportunity here, which is stunning. Yeah, well, basically, in North America, there's... It, I would basically consider three major uh, shows, and I think Clark would would agree with me on this comment. Would be uh, Train Fest, Springfield, and the NMRA National Convention are the three big yes. shows that manufacturers will typically announce new product at. Certainly. Yeah. Number one, I look at it. Uh, Train Fest has been going on uh, for this would have been the 49th year yeah. of an in-person event. Uh, and I figured we needed to do something, uh, number one, uh, for all the manufacturers because a lot of them have planned on announcing new product uh, for the event. Uh, but not only that is to keep a positive uh, uh, name for TrainFest itself. It's, it's something that uh, our division uh, is proud of. Of course, I don't know if you know the background on why we chose TrainFest as our name. I don't, but please. Okay, well. <laughs> Uh, the city of Milwaukee is well known for the city of festivals. Uh, most of them is heritage type uh, festivals and also a very large two week long music festival that's held at the end of June and beginning of July called Summerfest. So we have events called Polish Fest, German Fest, uh, Festa Italiana. Uh, wow. So so when Train Fest was started, it was about the time of all these other festivals. Uh, we're starting up also in Wonderful. our area. So it, it just kind of all tied in with the city of festivals. So this means a huge amount of work for you personally, right? This changes everything associated with this isn't train fest isn't happening. This is you have a huge opportunity to make a virtual train fest with all these manufacturers and already coming up out of a, you know, woodwork, so to speak. So how does this change the committee? I mean, are you getting, you know, folks from the Twin Cities? I mean, Tom Gaze, you're, you're reaching out to these people. Are, are there going to be, you know, virtual clinics that people are going to be hosting? What What's that thing looking like? Well, um, first thing I did on Thursday, because our board meeting was on Wednesday, I reached out to Gordy Robinson uh, just because Definitely. Uh, Mr. Mr. Inamari X, uh he knows he's been doing this already numerous times. Uh, in fact, uh, today I had to get out with my uh, buddy, which he's in the vehicle here with me. Um, we had to get out, and uh, I had to get away from the computer for a little bit. So we went trackside, <laughs> you know, photographing trains. Wonderful. But uh, but that that's the first thing. I guess today uh, on on the NMRA X, uh, uh, it was I seen one email sent to me that Gordy mentioned that uh, they were working with train fest on bringing a virtual event since train fest had had to cancel so mm. i know without even even though i'm supposed to be talking to gordy uh tomorrow as as of this recording to start talking logistics and at uh, the national Ray is fully behind our division 100 on the on a virtual 
uh, Train Fest. So, you know, there's a lot lot to work out. Uh, I've had different clubs already reach out about how their their uh, model train clubs can participate mm-hmm. with layout tours. So it's going to be, I guess, a lot of your questions. It'll be there'll be a lot of yeses. I know. <laughs> I before before this uh, went to the board meeting, I talked to Clark uh, Cooney because I had some of the information that I had to bring forth to our board, uh, just in case. You know, could I tap Clark for a clinic? And uh, uh, he already told me whatever I needed. Uh, Wonderful. Uh, he'd be there to help us, and I'm sure I could do the same with Tom and. Uh, some of the Twin Cities guys yeah. that uh, their presentations. Um, will there be a lot of work for me? Probably yes. Uh, probably very much a big yes. But uh, <laughs> I have a lot, lot, lot of good friends in in this hobby. Definitely. A lot of our board members have stepped up to, and helped. They said they would help out where they can. Um, I've already talked to our marketing firm, which is uh, a very web centric uh, uh, marketing firm. Uh, asked them if there was a way to tie in the Facebook Live uh, feed yeah. if we go route onto our trainfest.com webpage. And they said there was ways of doing that, uh, and they'd be happy to help us out with that. So I don't know how it's all going to be streamed over the Internet yet, uh, if there'll be multiple platforms. Um, like I said, this is only now uh, day three on the planning yes. for the virtual aspect. So... There's a lot of bugs and things to figure out. Uh, so normally but, for Train Fest, I mean, I'm aware of some shows where they have like T-shirts and caps and, you know, some shows have box cars and these kind of things. I mean, is that is that historically be part of Train Fest or is it just a less, you know, more low key, I guess, with regards to these elements? Or is there going to be like virtual Train Fest merch that people could, because I mean, I, for one, just absolutely love this idea, and I think Train Fest historically is known within the hobby to be one of the friendliest shows out there. In fact, it's one of the sad points that I've never actually been to Train Fest because everyone who I've spoken to, um, including um, I think did Nigel Catchell go to Train Fest this year or last year, the the folks that attend these shows always have positive things to say about Train Fest. So it seems like this is a kind of amazing possibility here are there going to be t-shirts caps these things can we i mean i guess what i'm interested in here is that obviously this historically had been a way of your division to make money yeah. and uh, I, I think the, the virtual nature of it shouldn't eliminate the fact that you guys should you know see some rewards through this thing well let me let me start off as far as as far as swag that's available we do have items for sale on our trainfest.com webpage. as far as t-shirts and hats Historically, in the past, we have tried doing that. Uh, unfortunately, uh, over the years, they've uh, declined in the amounts that were being sold. So mm-hmm. we've, that's something that we've kind of phased out. Okay. Um, as far as train cars, again, it's something that we, we did historically in the past. This year, before everything uh, uh, basically turned over backwards, uh, we had decided to drop the train cars. Uh, just for again for the the sheer fact of the quantities that we would have had to order to have a Certainly. decent price point, yeah, uh, it just was not economically feasible. Fair but enough. some of our manufacturers, uh, and I have not been had a chance to talk to them yet. Like Accurail, for example, uh, they would produce a limited run train fest. Um, actually, not just one, but a series of, of freight mm-hmm. cars, cool. usually for four different railroads, uh, three different numbers of each. Uh, 
uh, of cars that were only available at the Train Fest event. Um, Interesting. So well, I'm, let's hope they maintain that through virtual Train Fest, and we will see the offerings that are available. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's you know, there, there's a lot to be worked out, but I I wanted all the uh, listeners of this podcast, since me and you have talked a lot about uh, since me becoming superintendent and my involvement. We, you know, we've had a lot of discussions about Train Fest. I just wanted everybody to know what was going on and hear from the horse's mouth. Yeah. Well, Mike, I was initially saddened by the news, and I thought this is going to be a difficult conversation to have with you because obviously, as you've noted, this is a big part of your year. But this actually seems like you have the opportunity, and we've been talking, as you well know, because you've been part of many of these conversations, through the entire COVID period, we've been talking about the rise of these virtual train shows or, you know, what the Twin Cities are doing or obviously NMRX. And yeah, it's amazing now that you have the opportunity to run this with the backing of an existing, you know, convention that has a lot of history and really a lot of positive energy associated with it. I'm thoroughly impressed, Mike Slater. Congratulations. I, I would like to talk more, but my laptop battery, since I didn't bring my wall charger, <laughs> the same battery is running low. Don't worry. Don't so, worry. It's been a pleasure chatting, Mike. I understand what you need to do today. Enjoy the rest of your day, and thank you very much for, for calling into Model Rail Radio today. It's been wonderful to catch up. No, thanks a lot, Tom, and thanks for all the listeners to, uh, for following the, the course. And as I have more updates, I will come on the show and let everybody know. Wonderful. Look after yourself, Mike. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Yep, take care. A gentleman who appears to be ahead of the news in every circumstance possible. Clark Cooning, wonderful to hear from Mike Slater. Obviously, this is very exciting in terms of the potential of putting Train Fest and, uh, as we said, a bunch of kind of best in breed means of doing virtual shows. When you heard from Mike, what were your thoughts? Well, I think he, I think they, the board or their, their group made exactly the decision they should have. People go, Oh, you're canceling the train show. I love going there. But I don't think if they think of it like they're running their home or their household, they wouldn't go and say, okay, I want you to mortgage your whole house. You're going to take a leap of faith that we can have the show. And if we can't, then you're going to lose your house. And I think, yeah. I think these guys were very responsive, uh, you know, responsible in, in financially at Certainly. what they're doing. And, uh, you know, we, we hope that, uh, 2021 will be a, a big, uh, a big blowout and, uh, you know, but I think a happy what, show. What interests me is the potential for 2020. Mm-hmm. I mean, the nature of, of the guys from New York coming over and, and you know one i mean if you look at if you look at any train shop in popular culture history being in the second last episode of the sopranos is probably the the high point of the public facing aspect <laughs> of the hobby they're wanting to get involved i mean they they're eager to get involved with a virtual train fest this strikes me is the the smart the, the brains in the hobby seem to be converging on this thing you know, hats off to, to Gordy Robinson and co. And I mean, look, any assistance I can provide as well, be it infrastructure, any, any assistance I can provide here, certainly I want to say to, to Mike and co, you know, feel free to, you know, infrastructure, all these kind of questions. But this, I think, is just an amazing opportunity in 2020 
to start exploring, like, how do we do... I'm not sure if you heard on the call or whether you were on the call, but my wife has just done a day's worth quilting, which is effectively what you would do in a virtual... I mean, she, she's been she's got a machine going, she's got two cameras going. She wasn't the primary person in it, but they threw to her periodically to show what she was working on. This is basically going to be the normal for this thing, right? You... As, as a someone who's going to be doing clinics is going to potentially have a video feed with 10, 15, 20 different people all with their laptops or iPhones or Android devices or showing you video of what they're working on as well. I mean, can you get a sense of what that thing might look like? You know, I, I'm not sure how it's going to look. I think it's kind of a, a futuristic approach, but I think, I think that's where we are. I really do. I think, the co-video, as I like to call it, has changed how I, I think somebody once said, uh, you know, if you, if the world changes and you don't change, you're in trouble. And I think that's what we're doing. I think we're, uh, slowly changing to fit this, to fit what's going on in the world uh, today. And I think, uh, model railroading will benefit to some degree. And I think it will also be hurt in some degree. Mm. Um, there's nothing like getting together with a bunch of other model railroaders and just, you know, shooting the bull, Certainly. uh, personally. Mm. Um, you know, and I mean, you and I have had dinner. We've, you know, Certainly. and your wife and we've done conventions and we've driven to layouts and so forth. So, um, I think that part. That's a huge part of model railroading. It really is. The thing that interested uh, me through the thing with my wife, and I'm not sure if you heard the lead into this, was the aspect of social joy. There was lots of laughing, lots of shouting of joy, lots of, I mean, just the sounds that were coming out of the quilting room. And my wife apologized at some point because, you know, it's getting noisy. What have you. I said, no, this is, I'm finding really fascinating. I mean, I was in the back of the house editing model rail radio, but the nature of, like, so I've been on lockdown since the start of March. The only social interaction I've had other than my wife has been our, our postman, who I've given, you know, Starbucks card to water everything, basically. You know, he is our human point of contact. And my wife has a friend who also cuts her hair, and she came over six, eight weeks ago, and I was out in the garden, and we both were wearing masks, and she cut my hair. They're the only two bits of social interaction I've had since this thing started. I mean, I've got video conferencing, whatever, but I haven't actually had physical people in my presence. My wife's sister is coming this week, so I'm not recording next week because of that. She'll be the first person that's come into our environment pretty well since this thing started. Right. And what interests me is I agree entirely that, that humans interacting in physical space is the gold standard. However, what fascinated me through observing my wife's interaction, and I've actually found it quite moving, was how you could feel the cathartic energy of people talking about... So, for example, there was a scene, The everyone was had to... They had what they... Um, a scavenger hunt, where you had to find items in your house and then make it into the video as part of, you know, some frivolous giveaway thing that they were doing. In doing that, a woman showed an element, a part of a garage and she had an old car, 100-year-old car that had some connection to her family history, which she talked about. And then she said they were going to do a huge party 
the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren were going to come over. Because of COVID, they didn't do that. But she was still, it's showing this vehicle in this thing, which normally was a quilting thing. She, there was this huge kind of outpouring of catharsis of the kind of collective women associated with that. I think there are ways in which you can bring joy and catharsis and all these elements through video. I work through this time. It's been, and we do do continuous video interactions on a daily basis with my main team and certainly multiple times a week with the other teams that I interact with. We do get little elements of that, but I think there are ways that that kind of catharsis can be tuned for. And this is what really fascinates me, particularly in the kind of standard clinician thing, because you have an intimate opportunity in giving clinics to see people's workspaces as well. And you possibly could see other things that they're working on while you're giving the clinic, right? So you could potentially, through that, they might have structures or paint or something like that. You'd be potential for people to show elements of their layout, which obviously the Twin Cities guys have done as well. But I think the the nature of like historically what a formal clinic is, which is done in a hotel, you know, in a in a hotel room environment, standard kind of conference hotel room, versus people in their own homes, in their own hobby spaces. These kind of interactions I think could be really fascinating, Clark. Well, true, true. And I think you can see, you know, I mean, if people looked at my workbench and I used (laughs) to even do this clinic, I just used to bring my toolbox in and people go and we used to call it what's in Clark's toolbox type of thing. And, you know, people go, oh, I've never seen that. What do you use it for? How do you, you know? And uh, so I think people can learn an awful lot just from sitting down at their uh, just as long as they can sit at sit down in their, uh, you know, their own workspace and show people. Mm. And what I think will be interesting through this as well is a clinic that would historically have taken you a couple of hours may actually take you three or four hours now. I mean, you might have to have certain leeway of time just basically associated with firstly video setups and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see how the Train Fest guys approach this. And obviously, yeah. you know, Goody's going to be a part of that as well. But yeah, yeah it, I'm really fascinated to see how this thing plays out, Clark. And obviously, you've offered at least a single clinic. I'm assuming they're probably going to get you for a couple of clinics at least. Um, <laughs> I, I, well, Gordy, you know, Gordy's such a good guy, and he was sort of explaining to me what then. I said, okay, I'm in. What do you need? You know, like, I will help you out. Yes. I'm actually giving an NMRX uh, clinic in a couple of weeks' time. I probably should go back and actually finalize my slides. But yeah, it's interesting to me because I haven't historically done video in any way. And I'm actually quite interested in the software because I've heard it does particular, you know, has its own nuances as well. But yeah, I would much rather, and I've said this to the uh, folks that contacted me, I'd much rather do, you know, 20 minutes of clinic, 20 minutes of questions than, you know, whatever other format they had. Um, But yeah, you've done, have you done... You've done at least you've done a couple of NMRX clinics. Yeah, um, they've been mostly Facebook uh, um, or not Facebook. Well, they've been mostly PowerPoint mm. things with with me talking, and then the nice thing about that is that I that the host, whoever was hosting at the time, would ask me the questions, mm. and I found that very hard um, <laughs> because uh, I like the interaction. Certainly. And um, in a clinic and people would say, oh, how do you do, you know, like, and it's like, okay, well, you know, and then you can go off in that tangent. But 
I am in the process of trying to figure out a couple of different ways to get two different camera angles mm. to do a hands-on rock and scenery clinic. Mm. And uh, that will be hard because in the process that uh, the guys are using right now, you do not, you cannot see the questions in the chat unless yes. you have either two computers set up. Yes. Yeah, I think there's a formalism where they want to correlate the questions and then ask them at a particular time. Yeah. And I think certainly my observation, I sat in on yours and I sat in on Jim Gore's when you two were presenting together. And also I sat in on Seth Gartner's as well. And yeah, there was a slight disconnect. That's what I liked about the, well, the Twin Cities guys, they did kind of rolling questions, which I liked. And also the Twin Cities guys, there seemed to be more kind of chat conversation interaction with the various people in the chat there as well. Although a lot of it was kind of amusing. I think there's some digression into football at some stage. So, you know, it moved yeah. in a few different directions. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested in seeing what it's like as a clinician um, in part, because certainly my experience is giving, you know, clinic like discussions associated with podcasts is it does become conversations eventually. I mean, it does, you do end up with, you know, 15 or 20 people, that have a series of questions that you need to answer and it becomes an interactive thing. So I'm, I too, I'm a bit mindful of the sterility for want of a better term of, um, you know, doing it through this particular format. But I think it's important that, you know, Gordy and co learn and iterate based on that. And my hope is that they will, you know, move through tools and these kind of things. Although the overwhelming nature of actually running these kind of things, I think is really a difficulty as well. I mean, I, I'm genuinely, certainly the Twin Cities guys pulled back having done it on a, in a weekly format. And my main concern with Gordy is that now it's a process. It probably needs more nuanced feedback than maybe occurring. But certainly after I have my experience, I will be sure to give polite uh, feedback as well, because I think yeah. that's pretty important. Yeah. I, and I agree. I, I, that's one of the things like the doing the rock clinic weathering slash scenery clinic i would i really want that interaction mm. because if i'm doing something and somebody asks me the question right there in real time i can show them yes and i think that's a huge advantage rather than later on going trying back and explain it yeah because i can actually visually do it with them in real time Trainfest doesn't have to use the nmrx format i mean i think what interests me is Gordy's role as a consultant more than a director, potentially. And what interests me with TrainFest is the potential for, and here, certainly I can, I will talk to my wife about it afterwards. The people that did this quilting thing did an amazing job of getting, there were basically 80 women all quilting together and the interaction and stuff was very well done. And as you know, having participated in a few of these recordings through the COVID period, my view is that we've got a lot to learn from other hobbies through this time as well. I'm seeing in a variety of different hobbies, particularly convention-heavy hobbies, the way in which they're framing their virtual conventions is all very different and all have unique pluses and minuses. And certainly that's what interests me is to see if we can hybridize on a, a better format or at least an improving format. Um, yep. So, as Mike would listen to this audio after the fact, and hopefully others involved at TradeFest, my view is you don't necessarily be the forcing function here, but just say 
explore possibilities, I think. I don't think we need a boilerplate one-size-fits-all solution. And the thing that interests me, in particular with clinics, hands-on clinics, where you have, you know, as you would have historically. I mean, you when you give a clinic, you have like 15 to 40 people, right? Are those the kind of numbers you normally do? Well, not me, of course. <laughs> well, Terry Terrence, <laughs> I went to a Terry Terrence clinic where there were 40 people. Uh, oh, I, <laughs> I've had I've had over a hundred, but that's what I'm um, saying. I'm saying there are these varying. So in, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. no, and, you know, at the average at the average um, regional convention, it's usually ten to to forty people. Mm. Sure, yeah. So an ability to get direct feedback from those people. I mean, those that can connect with a you know smartphone device and this kind of stuff would be really fascinating. And I think yeah. if they need to, if they need technology assistance with that, I'd be more than happy to at least offer some speculative assistance and certainly reach out to folks in other hobbies that are doing this already, because I think it would be really fascinating to have to use Trainfest in particular all the positive energy associated with that particular convention to actually start exploring what this thing could look like. I mean, I you, you professionally historically. Probably have, you probably have a number of friends that are still professionally working in, you know, your former career. My suspicion is this thing could go on longer than we've been, than typically talked about so far. Oh, yeah. And I think, I think it's important to have these conversations now to get the sense that maybe, you know, maybe into next year, maybe even further, depending on, particularly if you look at some of the medical data about reinfection rates, this notion that you know, maybe it'll have to be a, an annual vaccine, all these possibilities within this thing. I think we could be doing this kind of stuff for quite some time to come. So it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of these things. But Clark, yep. I'm, it, it seems fortuitous that we've had so many conversations about this <laughs> leading up to the Trade Fest well, uh, you announcement. Know, it's, it's always a pleasure. I mean, and you and I have talked and we're, we're, we have similar ideas in some and totally mm. opposite on the other. And, uh, and, uh, thank God we like the same food. You, you've been um, way more successful than I have in this topic, Clark. I'm, I've always been an outsider and you've, although you've been an outsider, you've been able to work into the halls of, of power considerably better. On that point, uh, we are experimenting with a sushi place that is a mile away from us tonight. Oh. So, um, and it used to, it does kind of Korean fusion sushi. The other place we've used is like three miles away and eh, no. So it's a relatively cool evening. I've got to place an order after I get off this recording. So if I end early, you'll know why. Um, (laughs) It has been a pleasure chatting, Clark. And look, I think Mike is certainly in good hands with you. I'm fascinated to see what comes through this process and uh, any way I can help as well. Um, Because I think, yeah, there are just so many hobbies currently that seem to be going through the same kind of processes, but they are well, all coming up with different solutions. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think actually, I think the whole world is, is adjusting, but, um, you know, one thing, uh, and I was so happy, uh, when, when Mike told me, uh, a few years ago that he was going to take over and, and sort of help out the wise division. He's got a lot of good common sense. He, yeah. He's he's a good listener. He's yeah. certainly not not because he's reached out to me, but he has reached out to a lot of other people to get a good consensus before he makes a decision, and that's what a good leader does. So 
uh, not to uh, pat Mike on the back, but to pat Mike on the back, I think he's done, uh, you know, he's been very smart about it, and I think he's earned a lot of respect, and uh, he'll do uh, I fine with, with that division and the and the financial, the smart financial thing was to pass on this year. So I will mention, I think he forgot the narrow gauge convention. I think there's actually four main shows. Mm. Of course, for the narrow gauge, it's the narrow gauge convention. And then mm. um, it's uh, Trainfest, Springfield. And the I've Armory been to the narrow gauge convention last year. My view is the, the size of the narrow gauge convention, at least from my attendance, wasn't as big as... The, and I've been to a couple of nationals now. I think the Narragage Convention has its own. It's almost like a regional based on just the characters involved. It, it, it has a distinctly different flavor. And I think, um, while it is of size without question, it is a different kind of, yeah, it's a different kind of show. Although. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. It's a, it's a very much an internal group. Mm. Mm. As we're patting Mike on the back, leading into the show, I felt very strongly, to be frank, if anything ever happens to me, or if anything ever, Mike Slater is going to pick up Model Rail Radio. He is someone who is so, as you say, a good listener more than anything, but he's just such a salt of the earth person. And the more time that I spend in his presence, the more I'm kind of awed by how good he is in the hobby. He's just exactly the right person. Leading yeah. into this thing, because I didn't know about the virtual part of this thing, I thought that they had cancelled Trainfest, and just in terms of the energy and everything that went into this, I felt really bad for Mike, and I felt really bad, and I said this to him, we chatted about it briefly um, a couple of days ago, and I said, you lead the discussion on this thing, because normally I will misstep, I'll talk broader politics and other related nonsense, but Mike is just such an important person in this hobby that I just didn't want any of that baggage and i said you lead the conversation i didn't know about the virtual train fest at that point which completely changes the dynamic associated with this Um, but yeah leading into this thing i just really felt sadness that mike wouldn't have the opportunity to um, put out train fest this year because he and i had talked passionately about it i mean even the o-scale national i said you guys should do it with train fest because Trainfest was still on at the time. I'm really interested to see what comes out of this thing, and uh, you know, more power to Mike Slater. Hats off to him. Yeah. I think we said. No, I, I, <laughs> just a good guy, and uh, but I hopefully he's not listening to all this. Yeah, I'll edit it most of this out. Don't worry. Don't worry. But- <laughs> anyway, so I, I. All right. Well, you have a good night, Mister Tom. I have a virtual sushi run, which will become a physical sushi run very quickly. Let's see what actually manifests through this. Well, have a have a uni for me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And and yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, yeah I was interested. There has been a series of topics that I've been wanting to put out, and uh, tonight I had the I don't know how it happened, but I had the ability to chat with. Uh, Lawrence Eggering associated with just what a long-term layout actually means. Um, We will have this conversation at some other time, Clark Cooney. I'm going to leave on a little bit of a rant. Okay. For all those guys out there doing little videos on your layout, great. I love to see them. But why do I see the train at 500 miles an hour go by? End of my rant. Very good. (laughs) I was at uh, Grand Rapids and generated a huge amount of hate putting up YouTube videos of the layout tour at Grand Rapids when I was forced through in step march with everyone else walking through these small layouts at speed because we were all kind of 
sandwiched in and moved through at pace because somehow I think it was 12 layouts in five hours or something like that. Anyway, the comments where they said, send someone competent next time <laughs> is one that I've reflected on heavily. Video in the hobby. This is a topic well worth discussing. I think what's interesting with the Twin Cities folk is they're actually creating like documented standards for how layouts should be filmed. Interesting times, Clark Cooney. Yes, sir. For another day. Yep. After Sushiville. Another model rail radio, a few different directions this evening. We are getting regulars now in the COVID recording. I'm not complaining. I think uh, certainly the collective folk and I could talk for uh, for many hours about a variety of different topics. But yeah, certainly the announcement, the formal announcement with regards to Trainfest, this recording was absolutely fascinating. Thanks to the folks for uh, for calling in tonight. Thanks to also for the folks for listening in. Good evening. Good night, all. Good night, all.